As you've heard, on March 7th, the team will be going out, that is, what, just five weeks from today. There is a lot of work to be done, a lot of preliminary work that must be accomplished between now and then when they go out together. On the 7th, we will have an ordination service for you, Brother Jeremy, and a commissioning service for the team. And actually, we're planning a banquet following that, aren't we, Brother Jim? So there is going to be a big day on March the 7th, and you definitely want to mark your calendars and be part of the, the celebration and festivities of that day. But between now and then, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of preliminary work that needs to be done, not the least of which is choosing a name for the new church plant. A name is an important aspect that has to be done ahead of time because it's by a name that the community will come to know this new church plant. The name will communicate something to the community as they hear it. They will form initial impressions about this new church plant based on its name. A name is a handle, as it were, to describe a person or an object, and it, to a certain degree, becomes how that person or object is known by its name. For example, there are a group of Baptist churches that are called Free Will Baptist Churches. That name that they have chosen communicates something about an intense theological struggle that went on for them at the time that particular denominational affiliation was formed, the Free Will Baptists. You can take the word free, though, and move it to someplace else in the name of a church, and it designates a different aspect of a particular church. So you can have an evangelical free church. Same word free, but it means something entirely different. This speaks of a group of churches of Swedish background who grew up originally under a state church paradigm, which they rejected as being unbiblical. And so they wanted to establish themselves as free churches, that is, free of state supervision or support, the evangelical free church movement. Or there are a number of other churches that are called Fellowship Bible Churches. So there they have taken two aspects of their ministry that are very important to them and they've placed them up front into their name, Fellowship and Bible, and that's how they want to be known in the community. They want to be known as Fellowship Bible Churches. So the name that is chosen by the Fontana Church Plant will be communicating to the community something important, something that this new church plant holds as a priority as they go out and do their ministry. So what's in a name? A lot can be in a name. Followers of Jesus Christ have been called by many names as well. The New Testament itself records many, many, many different names that have been applied to those who follow Jesus Christ. One, in fact, a name that, that you and I take rather with delight to ourselves, was originally given to them to ridicule them, to mock them, and it was the name Christians. They were called Christians according to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. First, they're in Antioch, and actually the word Christians means partisans of Christ. They were partisans. They were of the party of Christ, and so they were called Christians. 
But the New Testament gives a number of other names. For example, we are called disciples. We are called disciples of Jesus Christ. We are also called followers of the way. The way. Followers of the way. It's used a couple of times, actually, in the book of Acts to refer to believers, to to refer to Christians. We're also called sons of light. We are the sons of light. We are called the children of God. Again, the New Testament refers to us that way a number of times. We are called children of God. We're also called children of light. Children of light. A very popular designation for the followers of Jesus Christ is saints. We are called saints. It's used 58 times in the New Testament. It means holy ones. We are the holy ones. Not in and of ourselves, but in union with the Holy One Himself, Jesus Christ. We are called saints. We are called the holy ones. We are called, in Colossians 1.24, the body of Christ. We are spoken of as the body of Christ. But far and away, the greatest, most predominant name that appears in the pages of the New Testament to refer to the followers of Jesus Christ is brethren. We are called brethren. The word is used over 190 times in the New Testament referring to you and I, the followers of Jesus Christ. We are called brethren. Brethren. It comes from a Greek word, adelphos. Brothers, brothers, it implies sisters in that word and thus is translated for us brethren. Literally, it does mean brothers, but it includes sisters. We are brothers and sisters. We are the brethren, the brethren gathered together. There is absolutely no doubt that the scriptures view us as a family. We are a family. We are the family of God. In fact, in the passage that will be before us this morning, why don't you open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. The passage before us this morning, verse 10, Romans 12, page 1136, if you're using a pew Bible. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul will use here the analogy of a family to inform and exhort the Christians in Rome and, by extension, you and I with regard to our love for one another. Romans chapter 12, as we have said, beginning in verse 9 and running through the end of the chapter, verse 21. Excuse me. Verse 21 is about love. It is about love. It is about love inside the fellowship of believers and it is about love to those outside the fellowship of believers. And in this passage, Paul lists a number of different aspects of love. That is, what it should be like. And we have pulled them down together into 12, and we're calling them ingredients. The 12 ingredients for love. That is, what does love, if you were to to mix it all up, how would you do that? And you would use these ingredients just like baking a cake. And the quality, the taste, the smell, the the. The the look of the the eye appeal of the cake that you would bake depends upon the quality of the ingredients that you put into it. High-quality ingredients, as we said last time, a lot of butter and a lot of cream produce high-quality cakes that are pleasing to the palate and helpful to the waistline. So, (laughs) 12 ingredients of love. And as we go through these ingredients... 
together, the purpose in all of this is for us to evaluate our own love. What does your love taste like? What does your love smell like? Is it that which Christ would display? Is it that which Christ would have? How's your cooking this morning? Now, we looked at two of them here in chapter 12, actually in verse 9. The first ingredient ingredient was sincerity. Love should be sincere. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. That was the first ingredient, a sincere kind of love. Last week, we looked at the second ingredient, and that is discerning. Our love is to be discerning, and Paul says in verse 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So the first two ingredients are that our love is to be sincere and our love is to be discerning. We arrive now at the third ingredient in verse 10 before us this morning, and that is affectionate. Our love is to be affectionate. We will also look at the fourth ingredient in the second half of verse 10, and that is respectful. Our love is to be respectful. So this morning we are looking at love, love that is affectionate and love that is respectful. Affectionate and respectful. Let me read the verse, Romans chapter 12 and beginning or in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted together, or to one another rather, in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And these commands occur, as we said, in the context of a family relationship. A family relationship. I've broken this down for you. You can see it on the back of your bulletin. I want to look at affectionate and I want to look at respectful in three ways. I want to look at the requirement. I want to look at the reason for the requirement. And I want to look at the result. That is, what will it actually look like as it's being applied in our lives and in the lives of this local congregation. So the requirement, the reason, and the result. Let's look first at the requirement here in the first part of verse 10. The requirement to be affectionate. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Paul uses two Greek words here, translated be devoted and brotherly love. Both of these Greek words are drawn from the root phaleo, phaleo, which speaks about love. It speaks about a certain kind of love, and he uses two compound words to express love here and a particular kind of love that is a family love. Paul is speaking here about a family love. The first word translated for us here, be devoted, is philostorgos. And it just speaks of a natural kind of love from a parent to a child. This word translated be devoted here is speaking about the love a parent has for their child. That is a natural love. That is a family kind of love. It is a love that is not based upon the, the outward appearances of the child It has nothing to do with the desirability of that child, the attractiveness of that child, or anything else. It is the love of a parent for their child. And anyone who has had children know what I'm talking about. You bring home that little bundle from the hospital and you say, isn't he or she so cute? But I have to confess, this is my confession for you, that often I don't necessarily see that in that little package. And I'm an equal opportunity offender because I did not see it in my own children either. (laughs) When I brought them home, I'm sorry, kids, but 
you became better looking as time went on. But when we first brought you home, not so much. But there's a natural aspect for certainly a mother and her child and a father and her child to look at the child and to say, oh, they are so cute. They have your nose, they have your eyes, they have, they have your hair or something. It's that idea of a natural love parent for child translated here, be devoted. Beyond Paul says that we are to be devoted. We are that natural parent-child love to one another. Do you see that? To one another. That is within the body here of Christ. We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's the second Greek compound word for us, the word Philadelphia. We're very used to that word, Philadelphia. It's very simply translated brotherly love. It is the love between a brother and a sister. So now we have parent-child, be devoted, and we have brother-sister. So we're looking at the family relationship from really all angles here. And it is very clear that what Paul is communicating is that within the local church, within the local fellowship, within the local body, what is going on is a family. We are a family together. These are your brothers and sisters. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. We are one great, big, extended family. Family. And what has happened is that these Greek words have been taken over into the language of the New Testament in a very, very particular way to refer to the unique relationship that exists within the local church, within the body of Christ, within the family of God. We are to have affection, Paul says, verse 10, with one another. We are to be affectionate toward one another. That is the requirement. Why? Why are we to be affectionate to one another? What is the theological basis of this requirement to be devoted to one another in, in brotherly love? Well, it's, it's laying right here on the surface for us, isn't it? It's very simple. It, it is that we are the family. We are a family. We are the family of God. We are the children of God. In fact, Turn back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We are sons of God. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Sons of God, children of God. We are a family together here. We are a very large, extended family. That is the reason we are to be devoted to one another in this kind of parent-child, brother-sister kind of love. Familial love. It is a natural thing within a human family, and it is to be a natural thing within a spiritual family of God because we are that great, big, extended family family. Now, we come from many different human backgrounds, don't we? We have different ethnicities here in the body. We have, we have different socioeconomic backgrounds. We come from different parts of the country, different parts of the world. We have different upbringings and heritages and all kinds of external differences that separate people at the human level. 
Humanity is anything but a family. Humanity is anything but in a, nat a relationship of natural affection to one another. Humanity is characterized by animosity, antagonism, violence, and hatred. And yet here, by the work of the Spirit of God, something has, has happened to us to absolutely transform us, to change us, so that we now operate differently than the rest of the world. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters. We have one Heavenly Father. Isn't that true? One Heavenly Father. One indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us, who, who motivates us, who enables us to love one another as part of the family of God. In fact, over in 1 Thessalonians, don't turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, just listen to what Paul says. It's on this same topic. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's an interesting statement. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That is the work of the Spirit of God in your heart, in my heart, teaches us that we should love one another in the same way that people who grow up in a family as brothers and sisters, parent and child, know naturally they should love one another. When a parent brings their child home from the hospital, they know they, they love this child. It's a natural thing. It's an unnatural thing for a parent not to love their child. It's an unnatural thing for a brother and a sister not to love one another, for two brothers not to love one another, for two sisters not to love one another. That is unnatural. The natural thing is to have affection for those with whom you share a close and intimate relationship. So it is the work of the Spirit of God in my heart and in your heart that makes the filling out of this command here in Romans chapter 12 a very natural thing. This is not something that you have to work up. This is something that the Spirit is working to produce in you and we cooperate with what the Spirit is trying to do. You know, I think a healthy church, a healthy church should be as ethnically diverse as the community in which it ministers. I think that that is a sign of a healthy body, a body that understands the work of the Spirit, that we have been made one. We are the children of God. We are the sons of light. We are brothers and sisters. We are brethren. It concerns me that Sunday morning is one of the most segregated times in, in this country. And when people pull back into closed groupings based on external human factors, rather than work and allow the Spirit of God to work in them to overcome the things that divide us, that we might be one together. It is the Spirit's desire, brethren. It is the Spirit's desire that we love one another and that we be brought together with one another. And so, as I say, I think a healthy church should represent the ethnicity of the community in which it finds itself. This is something we should aspire to. This is something that we need to grow in. This is something that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts to help us to pursue if we will but walk in the Spirit. What is the result? What is the result of an affectionate kind of love? What does that look like? Well, it's interesting to me that the early church 
had a particular practice that symbolized their familial relationships, the fact that they were a family together. A very interesting practice. It's a practice that has, that has fallen out of, uh, of, of practice here in the 21st century in Western culture. We don't do this anymore. But they would greet one another with a holy, what? Kiss. Interesting, huh? They would greet one another with a holy kiss. And in fact, they're told to do so. Romans chapter 16, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5, 14 refers to it as the kiss of love. Over and over and over again, the believers in the first century had a symbol of greeting one for another that symbolized the familial relationship, the affectionate relationship that existed in the local body, and it was to kiss one another. Not not romantically, but a holy kiss. A holy kiss. It was there was nothing romantic going on here. It was it was a symbol of the reality of of the affection that they had one for another. So what do we have? What is our symbol here? What is our means of expressing our family identity, our family affection? How do we do that? Well, for some of you, there's a holy hug, a holy hug, and that's pretty good. And maybe that's maybe that's all we need is an appropriate symbol, the holy hug. Others of you, it's the holy handshake. (laughs) For others of you, it's the handshake with the head turned. But I think it's good. I think we should have something that reinforces the reality that we are a family together, a family together. I did not grow up, by the way, in a hugging family, but I married into a hugging family. And at first it was a little difficult. It was a little awkward. It was a little stiff to be hugged by people that I didn't know very well. And I thought there's two ways I can do this. I can find another girlfriend (laughs) or I can learn to enter into this family custom. And so I decided to enter in to the family custom because I wasn't sure I could never get another girl. I mean, this is the only girl I ever known in my life. <laughs> the only one I ever dated. So I entered in and, and became a hugger. And when I brought that home to my family, it was interesting because they were as stiff and rigid as I was initially. <laughs> but my father now hugs me. And I treasure it. I tre- my dad is 82 years old and I treasure my father's hugs. And he, I think he treasures mine too. So it's a way to express affection one for another. To hug. Anyway, let me share with you some observations on family affection. Here's some practical observations on family affection that I think have application to what we're talking about here in this this family, this spirit-made family. What does family affection look like? What does it look like? Well, I jotted down a few ideas, and let me just share them with you. I think family affection looks like a desire to spend time together. A desire to spend time. A family that is an affectionate family wants to spend time together. 
An affectionate family provides an environment where there is a freedom to live without pretension. That is, we do not have to pretend we are something that we are not at home. We're accepted for who we are with all of our flaws. And we can't fool the family members, right? They know who we really are. And yet they accept us and they love us anyway and we them. So there is a freedom to live without pretending to be perfect in an affectionate family. There is, going along with that, an acceptance. An affectionate family accepts one another. They value one another. There's a mutual encouragement that goes on in an affectionate family. People rooting for one another, encouraging one another, you can do this. I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you'll do well on this exam or whatever it is. There's just that mutual encouragement that goes on in an affectionate family. There are shared memories. Affectionate families have shared memories, memories of trials that they have overcome, memories of successes that God has enabled them to do. And and it's these shared memories. They act as glue to help bind the family together. Affectionate families have frequent communication. They talk to one another. They send each other text messages or Twitter or or write notes or leave cards or just communicate together around the dinner table, whatever it is. Affectionate families frequently communicate with each other. These are just simple, simple observations on affectionate families. Well, what hinders family affection? What hinders it? Well, a few. Lack of FaceTime. Lack of face time. That is, families that are so fragmented and going in so many directions that they never spend any time together at all. That hinders family affection. Rugged individualism. The idea that I don't need the family. The family doesn't need me. I'm on my own. I'm sufficient. Everyone goes along with this. Everyone doing their own thing, right? You get home and everyone gets their own meal. They go their own directions. They're involved in their own activities. They sleep in their own rooms. They close the door. They don't come out. And and there's nothing, no interaction going on at all. And that family's affection levels just drop and drop and drop. Arguments and hurtful words hinder family affection. In the heat of the moment, we say things that hurt people. And that can hinder family affection. When, when that happens, we need to repent. We need to humble our heart. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to be restored. And family affection returns. Family affection is hindered by an unwillingness to flex or show deference to other members of the family. Someone who always has to have it their own way hinders family affection. There is just basic indifference. I don't care whether I'm part of this family or not. I couldn't care less. That hinders family affection. And, you know, this is at the physical level. And these things transfer over to the spiritual level, beloved. The things that hinder family affection at the physical level hinder it at the spiritual level, too. Well, what promotes it? How do you promote family affection, family unity? Well, you share vision and goals together. Common vision, common goals. We're going someplace together as a family. We know what it means to be a family. We know where we're going. We know what we believe. We know why we believe it. We have these shared experiences along the way. Trials again, successes, things that we've overcome as a family unit. 
frequent and stimulating conversation rather than a lack of communication. There is frequent conversation and it's stimulating and it's desirable. You don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss the family dinner hour. They're going to be talking about some things that are really stimulating. And I I want to hear what they have to say. And I want to be able to say what I've got to say. Commitment to one another's good. Committing to being to to the good of one another is what stimulates family affection. Time. There's no there's no substitute for face time. Time spent together brings a family together. Sacrifice, serving each other's needs, humbling your heart to serve the other part members of the family brings a family together and stimulates affection. Genuine expressions of love, writing a note, bringing, giving a gift, encouraging words, many ways to show your affection one for another. All of these, again, at the human level, at the flesh and blood level, transfer over to the spiritual family of God And pay dividends or hinder family affection. Christian love is to be an affectionate kind of love. But notice verse 10 again. Paul also says that the fourth ingredient here for Christian love is it is to be respectful. Give preference to one another in Honor. This is the requirement to give preference to one another in honor. Literally outdo one another in showing honor. That would be a literal translation of the Greek here. Outdo one another in showing honor. What is honor? You ever thought about that? It's a word we frequently use. We throw it around. But what is honor? When you honor someone, what does that mean? When you are honored, what does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, the Greek word translated honor has a number of other words that it's translated by that help try to express the the understanding of this particular Greek word. Honor is certainly one of them, but it's also translated by the word respect. Respect is a close synonym for honor in the New Testament. Recognition is another close synonym for this Greek word translated honor here. And here's two that I found really interesting. Price or value. Price or value are also synonyms for honor. Price or value. Fascinating. This idea of value, by the way, comes very strongly, comes to us very strongly in the in first Timothy, chapter one, verse 17, chapter six, verse 16. When we honor God, we're told there to honor God. And and it's the idea of value that comes through in those particular verses. It suggests the idea that the person or the object being honored deserves what they get and are worthy of it. That's where the price, the value concept comes in. They're worthy of being honored. They're worthy of being valued. It's a it's a fair price to pay. Look again at verse 10, what Paul says here. Outdo one another in showing honor. Or said another way, be a leader not a follower in giving honor to other Christians. 
Set the example. Set the example of giving honor to other Christians. Why? What is the reason for this kind of requirement? Why does Paul say this to us? What is the reason? What is the theological basis for this requirement to outdo each other in giving honor? I think it's twofold. I think it's twofold. The first is the example of Christ himself. It is the example of Christ himself. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That is, the Son of Glory, second person of the triune Godhead, did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve, ultimately giving his life as a ransom for many. That is the example of Jesus Christ. In fact, we read it earlier in the service In Philippians chapter 2, right, verses 5 through 8, Paul says there, have this same attitude in you that was in Jesus Christ, who in the very form of God humbled himself and took to himself humanity all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. We have the example of Jesus Christ, the supreme example of giving honor and respect to others, not based on, in their case, upon an inherent worthiness, and we'll get to that in a minute, but because of the work of what Christ has done in them. You know, I was thinking about Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have been elect to be changed, to become like Jesus Christ. We are going to become like Jesus Christ. If Christ is the supreme example of humility, And beloved, one of the reasons why we're to outdo each other in showing respect and honor is because it requires humility to do that. It requires humility. It requires us to humble our hearts in order to honor you above all else, in order for you to honor me above all else, in order for me to outdo you in honoring you. I must humble my heart. I must see you as more important than I am. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. But as I said, the word has the idea of value inherent in it as well. And so there is a sense in which I have value and you have value and we're worthy to be honored. Not in and of myself. Not in and of myself. I am a, I am a sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace. So there is no inherent value in me that would cause you to honor me as a sinner saved by grace. But I have been united with Jesus Christ. I am in union with Christ. Christ dwells in me. His spirit dwells in me. I am united with Jesus Christ. And thus, Christ as the exalted one is in me. And so when you honor me, you are actually honoring Jesus Christ his work in me. And when I honor you, I am honoring Jesus Christ and his work in you. As a fellow believer, you represent Jesus Christ to me. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That that person sitting next to you in the pew actually represents Jesus Christ to you. That makes them worthy of honor. It makes them worthy of honor. 
John says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In union with Jesus Christ, you have value. You're worthy of honor. What does it look like? What are the results of fulfilling this command to outdo one another in honor? Again, let me list for you some practical ideas. There's a very simple one. Give up your seat for another person. Give up your seat, not grudgingly, willingly. Save the very best seat for someone else. When you come in on Sunday morning, rather than littering the pews with with books and Bibles so that you can reserve the very best spot for yourself. Take the seats where the view is not as good, where the sound is not as good. And save the best seats for your brothers and sisters and the family whom you love. That's a novel thought, isn't it? Some years ago, we were attending a shepherd's conference over at Grace Community Church. There are about 4,000 pastors and laymen that show up for this shepherd's conference. Because there are so many people that show up, that unless you have a a paid uh, ticket to get into the conference, you cannot sit in the worship center. It only holds about 3,500 people. So if, for example, Carol came over with me one night and and I wanted her to be able to enjoy the speakers, but we could not sit in the worship center because she doesn't have a paid admittance. So we sat in the overflow seating with a big video screen. And what was really interesting to us was they turned the video on early and people lined up at the doors outside the building until they opened the doors and then the running of the bulls began. And it was fascinating to see pastors at full tilt, running down the aisles in order to get the best seats up close. And it really struck my heart because a couple years before, I had been in the crowd that was running. I had been a runner myself. But by the grace of God, when I was able to step back from it and watch it, no sound, just a great big video screen from the back of the auditorium, cameras and... I thought to myself, wow, wow, there's no difference going on here at all. It's every man for himself to get the best seat he can get. Kind of a contradiction, isn't it? It's kind of a contradiction. So a challenge, a challenge for all of us. Give up your seat. Give up your seat. Easter is coming, beloved. Easter is our single largest attendance Sunday by far. The attendance we're anticipating this year may be such that we need to go to two services. We're still working some of that out. But one thing I know for sure is that there will be a lot of guests who come here on Easter Sunday morning. How about giving them the best seats? How about giving them the best seats? Second, practical example, truly desire the other person's advancement. 
truly desire the other person's advancement and, and praise their accomplishments. You know, maybe, maybe they were selected for a ministry position that you thought you deserved. Maybe you think you're more qualified than they are for a, a certain position of ministry that they've been selected for and, and you have not. Don't grumble. Glory in what God has done. Outdo yourself in giving honor to them. That is to recognize them. Rejoice in their success. Third, don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be asked to do ministry. Volunteer. Step up. Come forward. Fill the ministry needs within the body without having someone having to ask you to do it. Particularly if it's not a glamorous position. There are certain positions everybody wants because they're the glamour positions. But there are many, many ministries that are not so glamorous. Do you know week after week, there's an extensive children's ministry going on over in that part of the campus? There are people serving in the nursery week in and week out that get little or no recognition. They miss out on the worship service Every Sunday they serve over there. Do you know that? They miss out. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be fabulous? Wouldn't it be fabulous if so many people were to go to Mrs. Astadurian to volunteer to willingly miss worship or other times when, it's, when you'd really rather be here to go over there and minister? You probably have to call the paramedics. Reinvigorate her. Beloved, there are a lot of ministry that goes on here behind the scenes. Don't wait to be asked. Outdo one another in stepping forward and honoring and showing respect. I think of the ushers and greeter ministries. I know K.R. and Marie Dennis are constantly in need of people who are willing to do those kinds of ministries. Again, they're a little bit thankless, but they're so important. How about this one? Custodial cleanup after an event. Don't be the first one out of the room as soon as the event's over. Hang around a while. Pick up a mop. Empty the trash. Outdo one another in showing preference to others. I praise the Lord for all the weddings that have occurred this past year and the, and the many, many, many people who have volunteered to help out in these weddings and the, and the wedding receptions. It's been, it's been wonderful in the body here to see so many people rise up and volunteer to help. Very encouraging, very exciting. It is the outdoing aspect going on in that. And I praise the Lord for it. Like the Apostle Paul, let's excel still more in doing these kind of things. Even the church planting team, when they go out, they're going to need help. There will be opportunities for ministry there, too, where we can tangibly help them. I know Jim and Jeremy are working on a, on a plan that they'll be unveiling soon as to how we can provide some ongoing support for this fledgling work. Let's outdo each other in, in stepping forward to help. This church might get some traction in Fontana. We might see the Lord work and, and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Last practical aspect here. 
Let's outdo each other in submitting and deferring our preferences to one another with regard to music, with regard to worship music. Probably one of the most divisive issues in the modern church today is music style. Everybody has something that they like and something that they don't like. And for many, they're unwilling to even consider that what someone else likes might be a valid form. They want it their own way. But a body that has an affection one for another, like a family, and is seeking to outdo each other in honor and respect and preference one for another, will willingly submit their preferences to another's. Believe it or not, by the grace of God, unless the Lord comes first, we will get to chapter 14. We will get to chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Romans. It speaks about. Dietary issues in the early church, Jew Gentile problems. We don't really have dietary problems in the church here, but we've got other kinds of problems that are divisive, potentially. What underlies the thread of the teaching in Romans 14, where he talks about deference one to another, is the love aspect of chapter 12. And that is built upon the the theological reality of chapters 1 through 11. If we really are sinners redeemed in Christ with no claim on God, His grace been poured out to us, then, beloved, we have no rights and no ability to assert preferences. Let's outdo each other. You know, when you grow up in a family and it's time to go out to lunch. Hey, let's go out to lunch. Okay, let's go to lunch. Where do you want to go, kids? I want to go to McDonald's. I want to go to Burger King. I want to go to to Domino's. I want to go to Chinese food. What do we do? Do we drive to McDonald's first for one kid and then over to Burger King for another kid and then off to Domino's for a personal pan pizza and then off to the Chinese place for Chinese food? Is that how it's done? No, it's not how it's done. Dad says we're going here. (laughs) That's how it's done. (laughs) Isn't that the way it's done? (laughs) That's the problem with all analogies. They break down. Sometimes you go to McDonald's, sometimes you go to Burger King, sometimes you go for pizza, and sometimes you go for Chinese food. Isn't that how it really operates? And maybe it's not your first preference. Learn to like it. Learn to appreciate it. If for nothing else than for the fact that a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, who is Christ to you, finds it helpful for their worship. That's reason enough, isn't it? reason enough. Be devoted, Paul says, to one another in brotherly love. Outdo one another in giving honor. Folks, this all presupposes, this all presupposes the work of grace in your heart. It presupposes that God in Christ has so transformed you that you have gone from being 
his enemy to his child, to his friend. And then his spirit dwells within you and is motivating you and empowering you and directing you so that your life might look like Christ. A practical outworking of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, this section of Romans we recognize is not a a simple list of do's and don'ts, a checklist for spirituality, something that we can just go through quickly and say, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that. I'm not so good there, but that's okay, and do that. It's really a penetrating evaluation of the quality of our love. It is the opportunity for us to to do some self-assessment. Not to evaluate the quality of the love of our neighbor, our spouse, our children, or our parents. It's an opportunity for us to do some self-evaluation. Oh Lord, may you enable us to see ourselves as you see us. May your Holy Spirit penetrate and expose those areas in our lives, in my life, Lord, where I do not have affection for my brothers and sisters here. Show me those places, Lord, that I might repent and change. Oh, Father, the area and issue of respect, we live in such a disrespectful world. We live in such a time when everyone is asserting their own rights. Everybody's a special interest group. Lord, it's madness. Everybody asserting their own rights in their own way and clawing and biting and scrapping with one another. This is the world around us, our Father. And, oh Lord, the church too has felt the devastation of this kind of prideful sin. Please humble our hearts. Please humble our hearts. Allow us to see as we truly are. Enable us, Lord, to honor and respect each other. May it be a high value, a high priority for us because it's a high priority for you. Oh, Lord, work in the lives of your people. Those here this morning, our Father, who are not your people, who do not know Christ in a saving way, Lord, open their eyes to the truth. May you grant them salvation and may today be their day. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen.